Yeah, Jim asked me. You might ask, who's Jim? He hasn't been in here for years. <laughs> but he asked me, he's like, are you, are you up for preaching? And I was like, yeah, I'll just take a bunch of pain pills and, you know, then I'll preach. So if I give him like, hmm. no, just ibuprofen. <laughs> but yeah, so I want to start out with a story. Uh, when I was in school in Seattle a couple years ago, it was the end of the year. It was actually this time of year. And um, there was a shooting at the school. And you probably heard about it. It was like, yeah, it was pretty, it was gnarly. Um, I was right, right there, like right across the street. And the whole community was shaken up. It's crazy. I mean, this guy comes in. It's the opposite of a triumphant entry, right? And... What the community did with that, it was interesting to see how pe- different people dealt with it. Uh, the kids who had never been shooken up before, who come from really sheltered backgrounds or who had just not had really uncomfortable experiences to go through in their lives and deal with, they were distraught and lost. And Luckily, there's a bunch of students and the leaders of the school, this community, they have been through a lot of hard things. Like there's students in the, the black student union who have rough backgrounds. Um, kids from Mexico and Honduras at the school who knew how to deal with hard things. They had coping mechanisms. And um, it was interesting to see how they dealt with it differently. They used that suffering, this tragic event, to become a closer community and um, they loved each other really well, and it taught me a lot about how to love well, even when I'm suffering and in pain and asking God all the classic questions like, why all that stuff? And this kid who, who uh, was the perpetrator, man, it was a huge, it was a crazy abuse of power. Um... And what we did, the community did with that tragic event helped shape my life for sure, forever. But we suffer as people. It's just a human thing, right? Being in pain, it's a bummer. And we experience the abuse of power. And increasingly, I kind of get the feeling that our political system can't deal as well with abuse of power as it used to. Or maybe it was never good at it. But the question is what we do to deal with abuse of power and what we do with our power. A really common abuse of power right now, especially in schools, is cyberbullying. Bullying, even racism is still going on. Because privilege is power and it's an abuse. Racism is abuse of that privilege. And we, we have power, we have a lot more power than almost anybody else ever. Right, right now. And so chances are, with all of our power, we're probably uh, abusing it more often than is comfortable admitting, because I do too. Being uncomfortable is part of the human experience. It's funny, I feel like pews are designed to make us uncomfortable. But these chairs are pretty comfy, so you can come back anytime. <laughs> But at what cost do we defend our comfort or our power? 
What do we do to protect the power that we have, whatever that power is? Everyone has authority, but what do we do with that authority? And Jesus, the one with all the authority, does something really shocking with his authority, with his power. So let's go into the scriptures here. This passage, we're in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapters 11 and 12. But uh, the context of this whole thing is what Jesus does to answer these questions about authority and power. Um, The uh, conventional authorities and powers in this story defend their power and comfort at the cost of others. That's That's not the kind of kingdom Jesus is a king of, right? He's a servant king. And throughout the entirety of Scripture, the whole Bible, God is always on the side of the oppressed, the ones without power. So in Mark as a whole, this whole book of Mark, Jesus is king. That's a theme. Jesus is crucified. That's also a theme, which is a paradox. And Jesus is the messenger for God's kingdom throughout all of Mark. So he's telling us about God's kingdom, what it's like. He threatens and challenges all the conventional powers. Um, This gospel is the announcement of a new king. It's the announcement of a reign of a new king. The first eight chapters of Mark are about all, they're all about answering the question, who, who is this Jesus? Is he really the Messiah? What does that look like? The whole book is about Jesus' identity. And throughout the whole thing, nobody gets it. (laughs) The whole time. Not even Peter. Especially not Peter. But he wrestles with it. And he gives us some letters later on that give us some insight. But Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the servant king. And this is a startling claim. It's even disturbing because this crucified one is king. The God still reigns even though his son is killed with a torture device. So now in this section we begin to learn how Jesus becomes king. We find out like the inauguration process. We find out what kind of kingdom it is. Um, Everything from the triumphal entry into the capital city of Jerusalem all the way to his death on the cross explains what kind of kingdom Jesus is king of. In chapters 9 and 10, so right before this, we're zooming in a little bit. Right before this, Jesus leaves everybody confused. This is also a sneak peek because uh, Jim is going to preach on 9 and 10 next week. So we get a sneak peek forward. Anyways, Jesus leaves everybody confused because of his teachings about the cross. He makes clear that his life, his whole life leading up to this point, leads on to the cross. And this is a huge contrast, the cross, as the end game. It's huge contrast and confuses all of his followers to a kingly entry into the city, which is going to happen. We're going to look at that. So, in chapter 11, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. This is the uh, Palm Sunday story. You guys know, like, Hosanna, palm branches, people line their clothes on the ground so that the donkey can walk on them, right? All this stuff, and this happens in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is... For Israel and for Jesus, who's a good Israelite, Jerusalem is the place where God rules. 
And he, this is the place from where he brings peace and blessing. So this city is meant to be the image of God reigning from the temple outward. So the temple is the locus. So in this entry of Jesus, it looks like exactly like the entry of a king would look. Everything the people do is what they would do for someone they think is going to kick out the Romans, right? Someone they think has power to change their comfort level. So in chapter 11, verses 1 through 26, we see that Jesus is really popular. He's kingly. He does kingly things, and he has authority. Let's read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 11. They say, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. This is what a king would do, right to the temple. Everybody's praising. They're following him. They're probably thinking, all these people, you know, I'd probably be willing to take up arms against the Romans if this guy starts it. But Jesus walks into the temple. This is his thing. They're expecting this huge climax. And he kind of looks around and he's like, all right, cool. It's getting kind of late. I'm going to go. And everybody's like, what? Looking at verse 11, it says, He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. <laughs> everybody's like, what? Nothing happened. Okay, that's weird. But the next day, this is what the kingdom looks like that Jesus reigns over. The next day, we get this. In verses 12 through 25, we get the story of the cleansing of the temple. And Mark, just a little insight, Mark, the gospel writer, likes sandwiches. So he puts this story of the temple in between a sandwich with the fig trees. The fig tree. The fig tree gives us a hint about what this passage is about. It's not producing fruit. Jesus curses it. Seems kind of mean. But when you look at the whole meaning, all of it together with the sandwich... You're like, oh, okay. So he curses the fig tree, goes in the temple, cleanses the temple, purifies it, comes back out, fig tree is withered, destroyed. So this gives us insight to the function of the temple. What kind of fruit is the temple supposed to produce? It's supposed to produce care for the poor and oppressed. That's what praising God looks like. That's what the temple is supposed to do. And it hasn't been producing the right fruit. All the people involved with the temple, all the authorities and powers that are in charge, haven't been producing the right fruit. It hasn't been loving God and people properly. And so he cleans it out. And this is an act of authority, right? Jesus is saying, only God can purify the temple. So the Lord has come to the temple. And this is a direct threat to all these conventional powers to their comfort and to their power. So he always, he confronts and challenges the, the religious and political authorities from here on out and they challenge him right back, right? They're defending it. They're defending their comfort and their power. Um, in verse 27, we, we start to see this rise in tension between Jesus and the authorities. So let's read 11.28. They ask him, 
By what authority are you doing these things? Right? Because only God's authority can purify the temple. So they, so Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer that question unless you answer what authority the gospel or the ministry of John the Baptist was done in. And they get nervous because Jesus is popular. John the Baptist is popular. They don't want to make anybody mad. They want to keep their comfort, right? So they deny God's authority, basically. And Jesus says, well, if you can't answer that question, I'm not going to answer yours. But let me tell you a story (laughs) that kind of indirectly answers the question and makes them so mad they're going to kill him. So these, this authority that Jesus has is the authority of a servant king. And this is definitely going to evoke a challenge from domineering kings. Now in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, Jesus tells the story of the vineyard tenants. And this is kind of answers the question, what authority? And um, the vineyard tenants, basically, are supposed to take care of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard keeps sending servants. They keep killing the servants. He says, okay, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. They kill the son. Then, let's read verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 9. says right what will the owner of the vineyard do after they kill his son he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others this recalls um, the story of Pharaoh in Exodus someone who faces destruction because of unjust ways the same thing is going to happen to the vineyard tenants and they perceive the temple establishment, these people of authority perceive that this is against them, right? You can see why that would make them mad. So they all get really mad. They start conniving. All these powers, conventional powers, start conniving against Jesus. In verses uh, chapter 12, 13 through 17, Pharisees and Herodians team up to catch Jesus in his words. These are not friendly people with each other. This is like if uh, Trump and Clinton teamed up to take out Joe Schmo. It's crazy. So they try to trap in his words. They make this really clever trap. It's about taxes. If Jesus takes a misstep here about taxes, he could be imprisoned in a second, right? There seems like there's not really an escape. And this is a huge collaboration of enemies. It's crazy. They put aside animosity for fear of one man. Let's read 12, 14b, what they ask him. So the second half of verse 14. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay? Right? It's just a simple question. But it's a perfect trap. But Jesus is more clever than they are. Not just more clever, but he turns the whole trap into something they have to wrestle with. Jesus is way too clever. He gets away. Just like that dang fish I had on the line yesterday. Got away. But he turns their question into a, turns their trap into a question of identity. So they say, he says, whose image is on that coin? Give the coin to the guy whose image is on it in his writing. And then it's kind of the implied question is, whose image is on you? 
right? God's image. We're in God's image. God's writing is on us. We belong to God. So he turns it into a question of identity. Who do you belong to? He requires deeper reflection of them. He turns this into something where they have to wrestle with their loyalties and their priorities. And everybody's amazed. They're like, how did he get out of that one? So now someone else enters the scene, another conventional power, right? So we got Trump, Clinton. Now Sanders is in the mix trying to take out Joe Schmo. Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, they are conniving. They try to attack his popularity. So let's read. Well, they ask about the leveret marriage, which is basically if a guy's, uh, if a guy dies, then his widow marries his brother, and this protects the widow. This is a protection mechanism because it's a vulnerable position to be a widow. Then that happens again. So they connive this story, and they're like, okay, so this guy's wife, he dies, then she marries another, then she dies, then, and then so when the resurrection happens, which we don't believe in, Who's she going to be married to? Let's read verse 12, 14b. So chapter 12, verse 14. Wait, wait, no. Further down, <laughs> twelve twenty-three. <laughs> Who's, okay, last of all, the woman died. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? They don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus turns this question around too. He contrasts their perception of power with God's power. Why does he believe in the resurrection? That's kind of what they're asking. He doesn't use proof texts from scripture. He's not shooting Bible bullets at them like, hey, I believe because of this and this verse and this verse and this verse. He He appeals to the nature of God. He gives us a little bit of theological method. Think about the nature of God and character of God. Okay, so God is the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. If all people linked to him remain dead, how is he the God of the living? Right? So his focus is the power of God and the nature of God. And he gets out of that one too. So someone starts to get it. Some of these guys in power are like, hmm, starting to think a little bit. So the guy... Uh, In chapter 12, verse 28, one of the teachers comes along and says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So he's asking about the law. What kind of law is this kingdom enforcing? And the fruit of the temple, remember, is loyalty to God. The law, which is making the temple, right? That's what the temple uses as this law. The fruit of that is loyalty to God, not comfort. And self-sacrificial love for others. You guys remember what Jesus said about the law. The law is summed up in loving God and loving others. Jesus defines the law as love. And this guy commends him. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. It's crazy. I wonder what this guy's friends were thinking behind his back. So this shows us the motivation for serving and suffering on our path of following Jesus to the cross. Motivation is love. So now Jesus goes on the offensive. He goes, okay, read me this. In chapter 12, 35 through 37. But let's read 37. 
David calls himself Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? So he asks this question. He's starting to redefine what the Messiah is. He's trying to reshape what they're thinking about this new king is. In that, Jesus is pointing out that he's divine. This Messiah is God's son. This, one, this person who's condemned by human courts presides over the heavenly courts. And the law of this heavenly court is love. So these challenges have been coming, they're going back and forth, and Jesus is redefining what this kingdom is the whole time. Now this story about the widow who gives her last pennies, you guys have heard it before. Um, She gives her last pennies, and the rich people are giving so much. But Jesus is, again, here exposing and opposing the failure of the temple establishment, these conventional powers and authorities, to do its job of looking after the oppressed. According to the law of Moses, the priests, all the whole, everybody involved in this power structure are supposed to look after the widows, not take their last pennies. So Jesus challenges them again. These guys are mad. They're gonna, they want to kill him. And we see why. They're, he's directly opposing their power structure and their comfort. And nobody really gets it till the very end. Peter wrestles with this, and then he writes a letter to a community that has been wrestling with this and figures this stuff out and knows what to do with it and is still trying to live life in a world that has suffering. So let's look at First Peter. First Peter one, six through seven. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, suffering, this path of following Jesus, proves faith and glorifies God. In Mark and Peter, the Gospel of Mark and in the letters of Peter, suffering and hope in God belong together. Let's look at uh, chapter 2, verses 21. Just verse 21. 2 this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. His steps lead to the cross. His steps lead to this torture device. And we're supposed to follow that. Let's look at verses, uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 12 through 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised that painful trial, that at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So we're to expect this suffering. Our hope in the cross is not a free ticket to bliss. God wants to teach us something. He's always teaching us. He has something to say. Maybe the only way to say some things is through suffering. 
So, so what about this scripture? What does it matter? What is power supposed to look like? The power that's set up in Peter, in the community of Christians that's just developing, is a new priesthood, a new sort of temple establishment, with a new understanding of power. These are ones who use power like Jesus does, sacrificially. Exploitation is removed from the picture. This good news, the gospel, this proclamation of a new king, this servant king, is not that our lives will be nice and cushy. It's not even that we'll be more comfortable than when we didn't follow Christ. The good news is that we have something worth giving our comfort up for. We have something worth giving our lives for. It's not a gospel of prosperity or instant gratification. It'll take a high frustration tolerance. It, it'll take coping skills. It'll take everything we have. What a relief to be able to give everything we have to something. What an adventure. But what a pain in the butt. <laughs> so what is this cause we're committing to? We're, com- we're committing to love. We're committing to Jesus' cause. We're committing to love for Jesus himself and committing to our experience of him. It's hard to feel God's presence when we're suffering. It's hard to feel like a good Christian when we feel like we're being punished. But what if we aren't being punished? Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew something about suffering, about being uncomfortable. He opposed Nazi Germany. He knew about power. He opposed Nazi Germany and was imprisoned and executed for it. But he says this of the book of Mark. He's talking about Mark. And he says, Those who have found God in the cross of Jesus Christ know how wonderfully God hides himself in this world and how he is closest precisely when we believe him to be the most distant. Imagine what we could do if we stopped wasting energy trying to feel like good Christians Imagine what we could do for the kingdom if we understood what our power is for. That is for giving power to the powerless. Our power, whatever our power is, is given so we may suffer for the sake of others. We might not feel like God is close to us because we're suffering. We might feel like we'll never find him. But that is exactly where he is to be found. In our suffering and in others, That's where he's to be found. He didn't leave us here to suffer alone. He suffers with us now. So instead of getting bent out of shape, instead of being surprised about suffering, it's a chance really to learn. Love is worth giving our lives for. It's worth giving up being comfortable. This is a super tough challenge. It's not fun being uncomfortable. But Mark designed this account to make us wrestle with this very challenge. And as we wrestle, we, we must act in love, even when we feel like love is very distant. It isn't distant. It's right here. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for giving us these accounts that help us have hope and Help us hold this hope and this 
hard life intention and wrestle with that and be close to us in that. Help us love others well through that and teach us more. In Jesus' name, amen.